Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and we are going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through uh, 15, and really the focus that we're going to um, kind of tune into is how does uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ have effect and bearing on the Christian in this age? And we thought about 27, chapter 27 rather, of the um, lesson that we looked at last week, we really studied how the crucifixion of Christ um, has profound effects on on our lives and what it means for um, each one of us according to our salvation and how we live out the Christian life. And here we have to ask ourselves, what implications do the resurrection provide for us as well? And obviously chapter 27 ends on a pretty solemn note, and then 28 continues on with what I would argue is really the greatest news that the world's ever heard. So as we get into this, we have to kind of ask ourselves, um, what evidences do we find um, that that prove the resurrection? Uh, what meaning do we find within the resurrection? And what hope does it give us as Christians? So first and foremost, in the first six verses, we're going to look at the fact that the empty tomb verifies that Christ has risen. And unpacking this a little bit, um, you know, you think about how the Jewish leaders who really propagated the entire crucifixion of Christ, how they would have felt about um, the resurrection and how they would have felt about the crucifixion in contrast to Jesus' followers. You know, we think about the women that were going to the tomb, they were brokenhearted, um, and really they had just kind of spent their entire Sabbath uh, just, you know, in anticipation of the fact that they would go there and that they would uh, try to anoint um, Christ's body there in the garden. So from Matthew 27, 61, we know that these women were aware where Jesus' body was buried. They knew where it was. Um, in fact, uh, from a distance, they'd watched that Joseph and Nicodemus rolled the stone over the entrance of the tomb. And what would happen was they would dig out kind of a groove and, and kind of drop the stone downhill because of how heavy it was. So putting it in place was, a, was a, quite an easier task than it would be to, to move the stone. So their purpose in returning to the tomb, as we read about in Mark's gospel in chapter 16, verse verse 1, was to anoint the Lord's body for burial, which was a typical custom of the day. So the women went to the tomb only to find out that the stone had actually been rolled away by the angel. And some some skeptics uh, struggle with this particular aspect of the gospel records, because in Matthew and Mark, there seems to be somewhat of a contradiction as far as how many angels uh, were at the tomb. So I think it's good for us to look at this and have an answer. So um, Matthew and Mark contradict what, or supposedly contradict Luke and John's um, uh, recording of this particular narrative. So as we we kind of have to harmonize, so how many angels were there? So is it an actual contradiction, or were the writers just just again? There's different viewpoints. So are they just giving us different details and aspects of it? So we should keep in mind that each gospel account is very selective, with the, with the writers focusing on certain details. And they're writing from their own perspective, um, their own background, etc. So none would include all the details of an event like this. And Luke and John report that there were two angels present, while Matthew and Mark focus only on the angel that spoke. It's not that Matthew and Mark say there was only one angel. It's just that they record for us the angel that spoke to um, to uh, Mary as they were coming to uh, anoint the, the body, whereas Luke and John specifically state that there were two there. So not necessarily a contradiction, just a different point of view. So continuing on from there, while they were um, en route to the tomb, an earthquake occurs, and the second in a three-day period, uh, in, um, in verse 2, remember the first one happened at the crucifixion, so now another one is happening. 
there was not only an earthquake when Jesus died, but also an earthquake when he arose, which exemplifies this great power of what's happening here. This particular earthquake was in conjunction with the angels coming from heaven and rolling the stone away from the entrance to the tomb. And the angel's appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow, verse 4 tells us. And seeing the angel caused great consternation among the Roman soldiers. Obviously, it created a great deal of fear. So that they trembled and they fainted. And this was a typical response to witnessing divine encounters. Fainting when, when this then these divine things happen are evidence in Genesis chapter 28, Luke chapter 1, and Luke chapter 2 as well. So in verse 5 and 6, the angel invites the women to come see that Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb. And the expression, he has been raised, is what's known as a passive verb. And this indicates that the resurrection was an act of God. It wasn't the angel saying, we've done this thing, or even by his own power, but that God has raised Jesus from the dead. So all this was precisely what Jesus had told his followers would happen. This first proof of his resurrection was significant considering how secure the chief priests had made the tomb. If you want to read about how secure they made the tomb, go to Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. Not just any band of fishermen would be able to move some of the praetorian guard, which was the elite guard of the Roman centurions, remove the seal of Pilate, push a stone uphill out of a deep groove. There's a lot of aspects to this that very unlikely that um, human beings would have been able to accomplish in their own strength. So as we come back to this a little bit, you know, each of the Gospels mention the stone that was set in place at the entrance of the tomb. So a little background here. Entrances to Jewish tombs were typically very small. And if you've ever seen pictures of um, what is believed to be the tomb of Jesus in, um, in Israel, uh, you see that it is a very small opening. And then a small groove or a small trench would cover the seal of the entrance. So despite the fact that the stone was very heavy, its design would allow two men to move such a stone into place. But removing it would be much more difficult because putting the stone in place would usually be slightly downhill, while removing it would have meant rolling it up out of the groove and pushing the stone uphill. And this would be virtually impossible for a singular healthy man, much less someone like Christ who'd been tortured, beaten, and crucified. So the whole idea of Jesus fainting and swooning and all that is um, ultimately pretty much nonsense. So further the notion that the disciples could have moved such an object without being seen or heard by at least one of the trained Roman soldiers is really unimaginable. So another consideration was the seal that was put in place by Pilate. And this sealing involved stretching a cord across the stone and then fastening it with a kind of clay that would dry. And if you were tampering or you violated that seal, then you could imagine the wrath of the Roman government that would kind of fall upon you. So there are some, there's a great deal of evidence available to us that shows that this was not some kind of man-made um, scheme that was derived by Jesus' followers. The reality is that this was a miracle of God, and the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed to us by the angels at the tomb. So we can draw encouragement and hope from the fact that Jesus' tomb is in fact empty. So as the evidence of the empty tomb, how does the stone roll away affirm that Jesus has risen from the dead? Well, some logical conclusions we can come to is that there's no way Jesus or the disciples could have rolled the stone away with the tomb secured under the Roman guard. And no one has ever or could produce Jesus' body. Secondly, how is the resurrection of Christ a source of encouragement and hope for believers? So if this is true, and we believe it is, it gives us confidence that we will also rise to eternal life and assurance that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that all he promised will come to pass. And these are some powerful truths that the Christian faith hinges on as really one of the foundational elements of what we believe. 
So just in a moment, we'll come back and look and see how does Christ's physical interaction with those that he uh, were his followers, how does this verify the fact that he is risen? Welcome back. We have looked a little bit at the resurrection of Christ and some of the implications of that. We're almost in a way kind of putting the the resurrection, uh, not in maybe a formal way, but in an informal way, on trial. And we're looking at the evidences that are available to us because as Christians, we understand that we, we, we believe by faith and not by sight. But the scripture also tells us that our faith isn't an outright blind faith. That our faith is one where there is evidence of things that we cannot see. That there are things that um, are evidences that undergird our faith, even though we have strong belief um, in what Christ has done. So as we look at how does what Jesus did after the resurrection also verify the fact that he has risen. So in verses 7 through 10, the angels instruct the women to go and inform the disciples of the news of the resurrection. Which is also interesting that women would be used to provide the testimony for the risen um, body of Christ. You have to think that in this culture, the testimony of women, whether right or wrong, is just the nature of what it was, would have been seen as lesser value as far as testimony. So think in, con- in, in the contract of if you are developing a scheme to try to um, pull the wool over people's eyes that Jesus has been resurrected, you wouldn't necessarily use, um, in this case, uh, the, and even these particular women with their background, if you study more of who these women were and kind of what people knew about them, their testimony wouldn't have been very valid. You would have found like the most well-respected, well-regarded, whoever it was, to be the person to supposedly find this tomb open and Jesus' body gone. So keep that in mind as well. So the angels instruct the women to go give the testimony of the news of the resurrection. And again, these words match and confirm that Jesus had told them before his crucifixion, even though they didn't understand at the time. So Matthew 26, 32, Jesus actually prophesies his own resurrection. So the women immediately obeyed and they're ecstatic about the news that they just heard. And then at the same time, because they couldn't understand all the ramifications of what they had just seen and heard, they, they remained a little bit fearful. Um, And this combination of fear and joy seems to be a logical combination in really what we could all uh, believe to be very unusual circumstances. So either way, the women run to tell the disciples the good news. And as they hurry on their way, they encounter the Lord, right? At this point, they hear his voice and the women immediately fall at the Lord's feet and they begin to worship him. What's amazing about this is that Matthew's mention of the women taking hold of his feet is significant because this is an indicator that Jesus actually rose from the dead in bodily form and not in, in just in spirit or in the minds of his followers, as has often been suggested by skeptics. There are some people that will argue that, well, Jesus' body, bodily resurrection didn't actually happen, that it was just either his spirit or just kind of this... Um, what's the word I want to use? Almost like this transcendental mindset of his followers. The reality is that the first century church doesn't um, experience the amount of persecution that they did for um, a existential resurrection of Jesus, right? They, they know the testimony. Some many have seen Christ themselves and they've seen him in uh, his full bodily form. So by his appearance and joyful greeting, he eases their fears and repeated the same message of fear not. They had previously heard from the angel in verse 10. He also repeated the instruction to go and tell the disciples that he was alive. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers. And think about the the ramifications of that. You know, in spite of the fact that every single one of them ran away when he was arrested, he still refers to them with this familial term of both endearment and respect. 
So this term itself would have been very reassuring to the disciples who likely felt a great deal of guilt because they had abandoned their Lord at his greatest point of need. So Jesus' interaction with the women proved that his body has not been stolen, and in a society in which women were often viewed as second-class citizens, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that Jesus appears to them first and that their accounts are so prominent as recorded for us in the Gospels is really a striking uh, implication. It actually lends more credibility, in my opinion, to the Gospel accounts. The Gospel writers would not have depicted Christ appearing first to women if they simply made up the story. So they would have chosen men whose testimony would have been um, what would have in their society been believed to be more credible. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that men's testimony is more clear than women's. It's just a, it was just a fact of the society, the fabric of the society as it was at Jesus' time. Other accounts show that he appeared to many others as well, including the other disciples, James, Paul, and more than 500 people at once, as Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. So he even ate fish and he showed his scars from the nails and the spears. Again, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is very important um, to the Christian faith because it is what Jesus prophesied that would happen. It also gives us hope of what we read about um, that's expounded for us further in the New Testament about the fact that one day we will have this glorious resurrection where we will have the, the mortal body will put on immortality, that, that God will join our spirit with this immortal body that he has, this, this new creation that he has designed for us. So Jesus' um, bodily resurrection is very significant in that regard. So the women had no doubt that it was Jesus when they heard his voice, and in all of this they worshipped at his feet before they went to go tell others. And that's a really good application for us, to worship Christ first, and that is the power and the motivation that we will find to go tell others. We have a responsibility to worship Jesus and to tell others about the event of the resurrection. I mean, think about if you were there this, that morning, what emotions would you have felt and how would you have reacted? And what details would you include if you were telling the story? And why would you have confidence? Why do you have confidence that Christ has really risen from the dead? I can argue and I can tell you that there is so much evidence found within just the pages of Scripture, let alone historical records outside of um, the, the biblical record as well, that point to us um, just really powerful evidences. And I'll share some of those resources with you at the conclusion of the lesson, but that really allow us to um, realize that our faith is hinged very strongly on the evidence that God himself has provided for us. So we're going to come back here in just a minute and wrap up the rest of this, but we're going to look at how um, the Jewish leaders tried to actually cover up the fact that Jesus, Jesus had risen from the dead. All right, welcome back. We are wrapping up this last section here of the resurrection account in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 28. We've been really, uh, in a sense, putting the resurrection a little bit on trial and looking for evidence um, to prove that what happened, uh, that Jesus, what Jesus said would happen, in fact, did happen. So while the women were hurrying to spread the good news of the resurrection, there's another group that's at work who also understands what has happened here, and they realize they've got a big problem, and they've got to figure something out. So they hear for the testimony from the soldiers of what happened. Obviously, the soldiers experienced this powerful divine um, appearance of these angels and fainted, as we read earlier. So they hear this testimony from the soldiers, and the religious leaders give a large sum of money, as recorded in the Gospels, to the soldiers and or order them to propagate a story that the disciples came in the night, which is really ridiculous, and stole the body of Jesus, in verse 13. So this is to cover up... Um, I'm sorry, this kind of cover-up is really, as we mentioned earlier, very unlikely for quite a few reasons. First, 
the idea that every member of the Roman guard fell asleep during their overnight shift would be very unlikely because that would be at risk of their own life. And there were highly trained Roman soldiers. This is, this is the case not just because of the size of the Roman guard, but also in light of the fact that this kind of, um, like I said earlier, uh, failure to complete their responsibilities would, would genuinely cost their lives. Secondly, the possibility of all the guards sleeping through the disciples' effort to move a giant stone in a ditch, pushing it uphill, is unlikely at best. And then thirdly, if they were asleep so soundly, how could they even know what happened and who was responsible for taking the body of Jesus? So, regardless of how unlikely the story was, the religious leaders promised the guards that they could convince the governor to accept their story, and this would keep them out of trouble. This promise must have been a relief to the soldiers, so they took the money offered to them and they did exactly as they were told, as we read in verse 15. So Matthew then records that this story continued to be circulated in his day, and history says the same story was was being used well into the second century to discredit the fact of the resurrection. So this false story has been propagated for a few hundred years, and in fact, this false story is still propagated today, even though it's incredibly unlikely. So in spite of every, everything Jesus' enemies tried to secure the tomb, to lie about what happened, to frighten his followers, nothing kept this news from spreading globally. That's how you and I are still talking about it today. The fact that the message did not die at the hands of those with power, but instead was radically communicated by those without power, testifies to its veracity or its truthfulness. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this idea of um, uh, some of the aspects of this resurrection story. So some questions how Jesus could have been in the tomb for three days and still resurrected on Sunday. And you probably heard this every single year. Somebody comes up with some abstract timeline of of Good Friday, Silent Saturday, you know, the Resurrection Sunday, and Maundy Thursday, and you've probably seen all these Holy Week things, and that's great, but um, there's some really goofy timelines that are set out there, and a lot of it is just, um, it's just a, a, a misunderstanding of the way the days were rectified in this ancient time. We always think of things as far as our calendar, our 365, 24-hour-a-day calendar based on the Earth's revolution. Well, that's not the way things were in Jesus' time. And in fact, our Gregorian calendar didn't even exist until uh, probably, I'm ballparking here, but maybe a thousand years after the crucifixion of Christ. So how did the Jews reconcile their days helps us understand why we celebrate certain aspects on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, some people on Thursday, which is fine, um, and also uh, just how how we can be sure that the testimony and the record of the Bible falls in line with the storyline of how things happened um, from between the crucifixion and the resurrection. So I'll stop talking and I'll start giving a little bit of information. So the Jews calculated the Sabbath, a day in which no work could be performed. And again, this is through the Passover, this is happening. So the way they rec- reconciled their days was from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. So for Jewish intents and purposes, Friday, the day on which Jesus died, was counted as day one. It didn't matter when it occurred on Friday. The way they reconciled days is Friday is considered day one. Saturday, the day of rest, which would be the Sabbath, was considered day two. And then Sunday being the first day of the week, again, even though it was in the early morning on Sunday, the ways Jews reconciled their days was that was day three. We think of a day as a 24-hour period, and it would require three 24-hour periods. That's not the way that the Jews reconciled their days. So although Jesus had not been in the tomb for 72 hours, in the Jewish system of calculating days, the Lord's time in the grave spanned three days. 
So when you see three days written in the gospel records or Jesus' testimony or in other places, the three days isn't 24-hour periods. It's if it if it began within the within the day as the Jews saw it, that was a day. The next day, obviously Saturday, was the second day, and then Sunday was the third day. So the Lord's time in the grave spans three days, just like he prophesied. And here's another aspect of it that requires a little bit of humility, but some scholars also recognize the possibility that the Passover, which was a high holy day or a high Sabbath, as it was called, could have occurred on Friday, which would have added an additional day of rest to the weekend. So there could have been two days of rest. So in this scenario, the crucifixion could have been on Thursday. So Thursday, potentially, Friday, likely, Saturday, Sunday, resurrection. So when you see things that say, well, Jesus must have been crucified on Wednesday, that's just a Western culture. It's, again, you got to understand everything in context. So let's not take our modern culture and then try to jam it into the pages of the Bible. Let's look at how did the people of the day understand things and then work from that point. And that gives us a lot more clarity on how the Bible should be interpreted, which we talk about all the time in our study here. So hopefully that's helpful for you, because I'm sure you, you, I see it every year, you see it every year. People pull these weird timelines from these abstract websites, and it's just a, mis, it's just a, it's just a misunderstanding of taking a Western ca- Gregorian calendar and trying to jam it into a Jewish cultural system of how they reconcile their days. So let's not make that um, mistake. All right, moving on. So proclaiming the evidence for the resurrection, despite people's attempt to explain it away, is what is happening in this last section of Matthew chapter 28. So what does that mean for us? Well, the religious leaders made up a story that Jesus' disciples stole his body. And what are some of the explanations that people use today to try to explain away Christ's resurrection? Well, we've referenced earlier in previous lessons the swoon theory that Jesus just passed out. He fainted on the cross. The hallucination theory. Also, the spiritual resurrection theory. So the hallucination theory is that all of these people that say they saw Jesus after his resurrection were all hallucinating. And there's great um, literature out there that mass hallucinations almost never occur. And when they do, they're in very unusual circumstances. The second being the spiritual resurrection theory that was just Jesus' spirit, almost like a ghost in in that kind of sense that people saw, um, is also debunked by the way people saw and interacted with Jesus, touching his feet, Thomas putting his hands in his side, Jesus eating food. All those different aspects um, negate this idea of just a purely spiritual resurrection. So what evidence and reasoning have have we seen today that we can cite to assert the truthfulness of the resurrection? Well, here's some things you can take away. The first is the empty tomb obviously is evidence that Jesus is risen. There's many eyewitness accounts to the fact that Jesus has risen. Paul testifies to more than 500 people in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. We have the testimony of the angels. Jesus predicted this was happened in Matthew 26. The tomb had been secured. The women saw, heard, and touched Jesus' risen feet. Those fabricating the story would not have used women as witnesses. Jesus ate and drank with the disciples and showed them the scars from the nails and the spear. And the Romans' guards would not have slept through the moving of the stone and everything else that happened. So, um, there were a few things that I was going to share with you uh, regarding um, some more evidences that you can look at. And I have, I think what I'll do is I will, um, in the description of the lesson, I will add a few great resources that I think will be really helpful um, if you want to expand on this particular lesson and really dig deep in. Josh McDowell has some great um, information. Lee Strobel has some really good information. Uh, Gregory Kokel, Michael Grutheus, all these different um, apologists have written really helpful literature on 
is the resurrection of would it hold up in court? I guess is it is it valid? Can we as Christians feel like we have strong faith based on the evidences that are available to us? And I I'm standing uh, not literally standing I'm sitting, but I'm telling you that we have um, great evidence for the fact and the truth of the resurrection. That as Christians, our hope and our faith is secure because of what Jesus has done for us. And there really is evidence for that. So I hope this lesson has been helpful. I hope it has been something that has um, secured and maybe strengthened your own faith in what Jesus has done. And then next week, we're going to look a little bit about what do we do with this? And and we're going to look into the Great Commission and our responsibility to tell other people about what Jesus has done for us. So thank you for joining us here on the Calvary Couples Podcast, and I look forward to studying with you next time.